you are receiving this transmission, you are reclaiming the faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Welcome to episode 79 of Reclaiming the Faith. This is going to be part one of my interview with David Bursault. I'm so excited to bring that to y'all. Before I do, I want to give you a preview of one of the songs off my upcoming album, Babylon. This song is called Everything Has Changed, and it's a song about the resurrection and the impact it has on our lives. So check out this little excerpt of Everything Has Changed. So yeah, that was an excerpt of my song, Everything Has Changed, off my upcoming album, Babylon, which should be out in probably late July now. Um, But I am so excited to bring y'all part one of my interview with David Berceau. David Berceau is an attorney, an author of numerous books, including Will the Real Heretics Please Stand Up and In God We Don't Trust. He's a lecturer. He's a founder of Scroll Publishing, where you can find links to all of his books and audio teachings. He's also on the board of trustees at Sattler College. I've wanted to have this conversation for a little over a decade, and I am just so excited for y'all to be able to hear part one today. If you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a rating and review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Uh, that would be a big blessing to me and help other people find this channel. My wife and I, every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Central Time, are doing a verse-by-verse Bible study on Philippians, and we'd love for you all to check that out. Also, I'm a part of Justin Falls' Fourth Watch Radio Network, along with BDK of Omega Frequency, who I do a monthly Q&A show with called Ready With An Answer. And if you have any questions about what I talk about here on Reclaiming the Faith, please consider emailing me at emailphilsbaker at gmail.com and we'll hopefully answer that on Ready With An Answer Live each month. You can find all my music, a uh, link to the book, Patreon page, my blog, uh, pretty much everything you need that I've done, you can find a link on philsbaker.com, so please check that out. Also, the early Christian quotes that I use can generally be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, which you can purchase for a mere $5 on the Scroll Publishing website, scrollpublishing.com. 
All right. Well, without any further ado, let's get episode 79 rolling. All right, David Bursault, it is such an honor to have you on Reclaiming the Faith. This is um, something I've been looking forward to for a long time, and I just thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule uh, to have this conversation. Well, I am excited to to do this, Phil. Um, I appreciate your connecting with me and that that uh, and have this interview. Absolutely. Well, for those uh, who don't know you, would you please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to know Jesus? Okay. Um, well, I'm 70 years old. Um, I was a practicing attorney for uh, most of my adult life. And in uh, the late 1980s, uh, well, actually, beginning with the mid-1980s, I began researching the early church, and it led to me writing the book, Will the Real Heretics Please Stand Up? And since then, for the last uh, 30 years, I've spent most of my life, I started practicing law part-time and then spending the rest of my time writing and teaching about the early Christians. Now, my journey, my spiritual journey uh, is a little bit unusual. It's not the normal thing you hear. I was uh, raised as a Jehovah's Witness, and I actually came to my knowledge of Jesus and my love for him, my desire to serve him with my life while I was a Jehovah's Witness. Obviously, I didn't have a correct understanding of his deity. I, I believed in his deity. I knew he was my creator and, of course, my Lord, uh, that he was the son of God, but I didn't have a correct understanding or grasp of his deity at that point. But I gave my life to him uh, while I was still a Jehovah's Witness, but the Spirit, I think, made it clear to me that this was not the uh, true church is not where I needed to be and led me out from the witnesses. And that began a spiritual pilgrimage that um, of, through all kinds of different churches. But I ended up in um, an evangelical church uh, with a, a wonderful pastor. Uh, he and his wife were just a huge help to my wife and uh, myself on our journey. And um, of course, I embraced the Trinity at that point, but I didn't even remotely understand it. I don't think anybody did in the church. We all believed it in faith, which is fine, but um, it did bother me to believe something that I couldn't even begin to explain to somebody else. And uh, when I started reading the early Christian writings, which was part of that pilgrimage to grasp what was the historic faith, I came across for the first time in my life an explanation of the Trinity that made total sense, that I could fully understand. And, not, and so from that point on, it wasn't just a matter of, well, I believe in the Trinity because this is what the church says. But I believe in the Trinity because I understand what it's all about. 
and it it makes total sense and it totally fits the scriptures and so that was a just a a glorious moment in in my life on my journey so anyway i've probably told you more than what you wanted in your question no not at all that's that's great um you know i've uh when i came across uh, your teaching on the trinity and you i believe you were talking about uh, tertullian's example of the sun and uh, he also gets into like fountain and and river and stream kind of stuff um that's right. been that's really helpful for me too in understanding it and um you know i've i've spoken to many jehovah's witnesses we uh in my previous house that my wife and i lived in we lived about half a mile from a kingdom hall and so they would frequently come by our door had many long conversations and and that analogy was very helpful also in um in kind of opening up some of their eyes to a different understanding of the way non-jehovah's witnesses view you know god the godhead and um you know i've, I've found a lot of common ground with many Jehovah's Witnesses in the way that they approach the Sermon on the Mount, really seeking to live nonviolently and not getting involved in governmental affairs. And um, so that really helped also in, in speaking with them. But as, as a former Jehovah's Witness, like what approach would you take in witnessing to a friend or family member who is, is currently a Jehovah's Witness? Yeah, well, unfortunately, I don't have the privilege that you do because when you lead the witnesses they totally shun you yeah so as soon as they know that i'm a former jehovah's witness then yeah they will not talk to me and so jehovah's witnesses um back when i lived in texas yeah they they would not knock on my door uh, so yeah i never had the opportunity to be able to explain these things i was eager to when we moved here to pennsylvania um we did for a while jehovah's witnesses would uh come to the door uh unfortunately it was always i was outside you know mowing or or something like like that and uh, it was never a situation where i felt like i had was in a position to sit down and talk at that moment i kept thinking well there will be other opportunities and then i guess somehow um they found out who i was and uh yeah i haven't seen a jehovah's witness now at my door in at least 10 years so <laughs> anyway but w w what i would encourage i think what you've just been saying is exactly the right approach um building a relationship with them so that you can have conversations um a lot of the cult ministries, um, they encourage people to oh, come up with some kind of gotcha question that you can ask them and stump them and, and all of that. And that's fine. I'm sure there would be a number of those, but that's not going to bring them out of the witnesses. The only way I think you could ever hope to would be to build a relationship with them, help them to see the truth that you have and the areas of common ground. I mean, war is a big one. That that yeah. was one reason I felt like I could never attend any of the churches because of their eager, eagerly embracing war and 
having no qualms about killing each other over political causes that your nation or your cause meant more than your Christianity. And you would, without any hesitation, slaughter a fellow Christian because he happened to be born across a borderline from you and your two countries are at war. So um, it, it meant a lot to me to meet other Christians who also saw that war was wrong. Um, of course, I didn't ever have anyone give me an, an orthodox explanation of the Trinity. But like you say, now that you see what the Christians originally believed about the Trinity, I don't think most Jehovah's Witnesses would have any objection to embracing the Trinity once it's explained correctly and understanding it's not this thing that, that we all imagined. So it's things like that. One of the things that impressed me when I was a Jehovah's Witness was seeing love exercised by other professing Christians because we were told as Jehovah's Witnesses that we alone had Christian love. Uh, nobody else uh, had it except Jehovah's Witnesses. And so when I would see neighbors who were Baptists or, or whatever, doing very loving things, loving things to my wife and I, while we were still Jehovah's Witnesses, yeah, it brought question marks. It's, you know, I, I remember thinking, well, that's not supposed to be. Hmm. It, it didn't make me leave the Witnesses, but it, it did start raising question marks. And when I did leave, then it made it easier for me to start building relationships with other Christians or I should say Orthodox Christians and uh, journeying on from there. So you've talked a lot about so far about the impact of the early Christian writings on your life. So what, what are some of the early Christian documents that made the most impact on changing your Christian worldview? Yeah, that um, it, it was, it was all of them combined for sure. There wasn't like one work that, aha, uh -huh, this, this really did it. And, you know, it, was, it wasn't easy for me at first getting into their writings because it, there were a lot of things I kept running into that I wasn't expecting to find out about. Uh, I had some theological questions which had made me start reading their writings to get answers. One of them was eternal security. That, it, that was not what I was seeing in the New Testament and yet it's what our evangelical church taught. And so I was curious what they taught about that. And there were some questions like that that I had. Well, and I found those answers to those questions. But then there were all these other things I wasn't expecting to find that turned my whole spiritual world upside down. But some of the works that, you know, particularly stood out that I liked a lot that I could grasp. One would have been Justin Martyr's First Apology where he explains to the Romans what Christians believe, how they worship, uh, explains their baptisms, and what, uh, yeah, the essence of Christianity. And that was, it was kind of different than what our evangelical church was teaching. It's not how we would have presented the gospel. And then when I read uh, another apologetic work called Octavius, mm. It was written by uh, a man who was not a major early Christian writer, 
Mark Minucius Felix, it's probably the most readable of the early Christian works. And reading that, it was so inspiring. But again, it, it was different than the way we were witnessing. And then Tertullian's Apology. And, and I noticed all of them were saying basically the same thing. And it made me begin to question what my own standing with, with God. I, I realized that in the eyes of the early Christians, uh, I would have been looked at as a very backslidden, weak Christian. And yet in my own church, you know, I was a Sunday school teacher, somebody looked up to as a spiritual person. And it, it made me aware of my own spiritual poverty Another one, and you had alluded to it, was Tertullian's work entitled Against Praxius, which, in which he discusses the Trinity. In fact, it's the work where he coined the word uh, Trinity, where we get that term. Hmm. And I had never heard the Trinity explained the way he, the way he laid it out. And when I read that, I just remember I was so excited. It was like, oh, this makes perfect sense of and so of course, now I understand how he can be the son of God and yet be eternal, because before it was like, well, it seems like if he's the son, then he's not eternal. He can't be both. But, yeah, I've made it that the illustration, as you said, of the son, that Jesus is like the ray, rays of light coming out of the son. He's begotten from the father. He would not exist exist without the Father, just like the light coming from the Son would not exist without the Son. But if the Son were eternal, which it's not, but if the Son up in the sky has always been here, then the light has also always been here. The, the two are coexistent. And so that made sense to me. And that was one of those epiphany moments for me. And the interesting thing is that's not Tertullian's unique uh, view of the Trinity. I mean, when I read other writers, I saw they were all using the same illustrations, no matter whether it was Justin Martyr or Irenaeus or whoever, they are, they were all saying the same thing. It was obviously the historic faith. Uh, Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo the Jew is another one that stood out with me. Um, I've listened to your interview with Chuck Pike and, and uh, that's one of his favorite works, and he talked about that a lot, so I won't go into it, but it it opened my eyes to all of the so many Old, Test Old Testament prophecies about Jesus that I didn't realize were there. I mean, I knew the you know better known ones in Isaiah and, and in the Psalms, but there's so many other ones that I had never thought about before, and, and so that was exciting, and also his discussion of the Septuagint which I had not realized that was the Bible of the early church. And it was that writing um, that made me aware of that. And then again, I started realizing all of their quotations from all of them were always from the Septuagint. So, yeah, th those were big. All of those, you know, had a big impact on me. They were big eye openers. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned Justin's first apology and Tertullian's first apology. Um, for me, I mean, those, those are like major and another one for me, um, actually two, two others that were big eye openers for me were the Didache and then, uh, Methetes' letter to Diognetus, uh, just hitting on so much oh, of yeah. the lifestyle of Christians and the way, <laughs> and, um, yeah. I don't know, w would you mind, I, I know I didn't put this in the, in the questions, but 
Would you mind telling someone why they should read the Didache if they've never read it and they're a Christian? Why it's so important? Well, it's the earliest Christian writing we have outside of the New Testament, and it's possible it might be older than John's Gospel and uh, Revelation, some of those works. We don't know, but um, it, it has an extremely primitive character to it because it's talking about a time, it was written during a time when churches were still served by traveling prophets and teachers, and yet it mentions you need to uh, ordain for yourself, select bishops and deacons, and so it's in that transition period from the traveling teachers like Timothy, men like that, to having um, um, your, your local leaders instead of traveling leaders, and so that's the primitive character, and, and that's that and several things are why scholars date it so early. Um, but just a simple way it sets forth Christianity. I mean, there's hardly any theology in it. Uh, it talks about the two ways, which was a very uh, common early Christian theme. It's the theme of Jesus in the Sermon on, Sermon on the Mount, or one of his themes. There's two ways. There's the broad way and there's the narrow way. And you've got to decide which one you're going to go on. And when it sets out the narrow way, the DDK talks about it. Yeah, it goes through Jesus's teachings. And it's obvious that these weren't viewed as inspirational thoughts. These were viewed as commandments. This is how you live. And if you want to choose the way of life, well, this is how you live. It's not a matter of just embracing theology. It's a matter of your whole lifestyle. So, um and it's such a short work. It, I mean, a person can read it in, what, uh, 15 or 20 minutes. And so, yeah, it would logically be the starting place. It's not where I started because it stuck way back in, I think it's volume seven of the Antonicene Father. So it was quite a while before um, I made my way to it when I was reading them originally. But, yeah, that's why it is so valuable. And like you, like you say, the letter of Diognetus, which I'm guessing is around the year 125. We don't really know, but I think that's a pretty reasonable guess. Yeah, when he descri describes the Christian lifestyle, I mean, I just had to cringe because it didn't describe my lifestyle. I mean, some of the things did, but but not most of them. And I remember thinking, wow, I have got to do an about face. I mean, how I'm walking with Christ cannot be very pleasing to him. And I have really, really got to start taking his teaching seriously and make some major changes in my life. And, and again, the letter to Diognetus is very short and very readable. So, yeah, those two, um, I would encourage your listeners, yeah, pick them up and read them. It will not take you very long. And uh I think they will have a major impact on you. They have on a lot of a lot of people, people I've talked to who have started with those early ones, yeah, have all commented to me how much they have meant to them. Hmm. Uh, one of the things that I realized, like you were talking about it, there's, there are all these defenses, these apologies, where people are speaking to Romans. And I think personally, um, 
we could learn a lot as American Christians uh, from the way that the gospel is presented to these Romans. And so how do you think an early Christian would explain the gospel to just a typical Roman citizen living in the first or second century? Well, the nice thing is we don't have to guess on the answer to that because right. so many of their writings, that's what they're doing. They, they are explaining the gospel to the Romans. So, yeah, let me just go through how they typically did it. Of course, their apologetic writings are clearing up a lot of the misunderstandings, but then they give a positive uh, explanation of this is what Christianity is all about. One of the first things is explaining Jesus. They don't go into a lot of theological uh, deep explanations. He's the son of God uh, that who died for us and that he was resurrected from the dead. That was a big stumbling block to the pagans, this idea of someone being resurrected. Those of us who've you know, grown up in Christian or quasi-Christian um, atmospheres, of course, we're also used to hearing about you know, Jesus's resurrection. It's not usually something we have any struggle with, but the pagans had a big struggle with that. And the fact that he was going to return and that he was going to judge all mankind uh, the Romans, in their pagan religions, there wasn't going to be a judgment day. And you didn't have to answer later on for your sins. And so that had a sobering effect on people hearing that. So that was the basic theology that was presented. None of the early Christians that I can think of went to Romans to present the gospel. That That's the interesting thing that struck me, you know, being a member of an evangelical church, when we wanted to share Christianity, we would always go to Romans, you know, the four spiritual laws and, mm -hmm. and things like that. And that is not how they presented Christianity to the pagan Romans back then or to the Jews. You know, they, like I say, they talked about the person of Jesus, the basics. They didn't go in real deep on the Trinity or, or that sort of thing. And then... They talked about the teachings of Jesus, and invariably they would go into the Sermon on the Mount. And, and again, that was so very different from our evangelical church. Now, there were some similarities with Jehovah's Witnesses. Like you say, they, uh, they do put a lot of emphasis on the Sermon on the Mount. And so I could con you know, reconnect with, with that, something I had sort of abandoned, and now was you know, through the early Christian, I could reconnect with that. But, yeah, they, it was pointless to talk about Jesus and about Judgment Day without talking about his teachings. What did he teach? And they certainly felt like he came to earth not just to die for us, but to teach us how we are to live if we are going to be sons and daughters of God. And so that is why, you know, they quote from Matthew more than any other book because they quote from the Sermon on the Mount more than any other chapters in the, uh, I think the whole Bible, certainly in the New Testament. Yeah, so clearly uh, Protestantism has uh, kind of distorted the, the message of the early Christians, particularly in the way we approach uh, just defining what is the gospel and uh, living out 
the gospel uh, teachings of Jesus. Uh, but, you know, there were distortions early on. Uh, like we saw some, you can see some of the Gnostic heresies like Marcion uh, creeping in and and challenging uh, the Christian message. And then, you know, in the middle of the uh, third century, you got the Bishop of Rome in Cyprian's time, uh, <laughs> not being a very... Uh, a, not not being a person of integrity, <laughs> to say the least, um, and then yeah, Constantine, uh, his Edict of Milan making it legal, and um, and then Theodosius in three eighty uh, making not three eighty is it three eighty making Christianity the the religion? Yes, three, yeah. uh, you got it. Three eighty. Yeah, and then. Um, uh, Augustine, uh, the former Gnostic, uh, taking on a large role, and you begin to see uh, just a lot of distortions of the faith in Roman Catholicism. And so, um, how do you believe that Roman Catholicism began to distort that message of the early Christians? Or what are some examples of, the, of that? Okay, so on the Roman Catholic Church, one thing people need to understand is there's not like a clear dividing line that aha the roman catholic church started you, you know you can you can do a time when the reformation started or hmm. when you know this particular group or that the roman catholic church and the same is true of the eastern orthodox it was a you know a, a gradual transformation from the primitive church that uh, there are some big turning points, uh, and then there's just some things that were gradual, the, the corruption. But let me talk about some of the big turning points. And, and again, this was, I don't know if it's fair to say the Roman Catholic Church, but but whatever. The Certainly the biggest turning point in all Christian history would have been when Christianity became the state religion of the Roman Empire. And I don't mean when Theodosian made it the uh, official, because by 380, it was long before then, it was the de facto um, religion, state religion. But with Constantine, and I tend to use 325, the Council of Nicaea, as probably if you were going to pick a date where things really, really turned after that, that would be the date I think you would, you would have to use. Now, the Council of Nicaea, uh, you know, the Nicene Creed, I, I would totally embrace. I have no issues with the creed itself. It, it's a very good explanation or at least statement of the uh, divinity of, of Christ. It's, it's totally accurate. It's what the early Christians taught. The problem with the Council of Nicaea is that you have a Roman emperor who was not even a baptized Christian convening a worldwide council of bishops. It's like, what were what were these people thinking? I mean, they're letting a non-Christian call them to a conference, and he basically presided over the conference? Um now it came about because they were there was so much fighting over the uh, because of the errors of Arius uh, that 
yeah, Constantine saw the whole church was in this big theological uproar. And in some ways, he acted more as a Christian than most of them were doing. He did his best to try to get the thing just resolved, uh, dropped. Uh, and I think if they would have just dropped it, I think it would have just disappeared uh, as far as Arius is teaching. I, I think uh, they were just fanning the flames. But whatever, you have this emperor now presiding at a council, uh, which yeah, pretty much made it now this is the de facto religion of the Roman Empire, if the Roman emperor is the one convening a church council. And then after the council, they began to proclaim that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So now they were putting a church council on the same level as scripture, which is a, a second major, major corruption in uh, Christianity. Third, uh, after the council, uh, Constantine issued a proclamation that if anybody had any of the writings of Arius, the heretic, that they had to bring them forward and burn them. So now you have book burning being done by Christians and if anyone did not bring them forward and was found with them, they would be put to death. So now you have religious persecution, not Christians being persecuted, which just, you know, 15 years before it was, you know, Christians being put to death. And now they're putting heretics to death. Well, then with after the Council of Nicaea, then Christians, you know, really warmed up to Constantine and pretty soon it was like, wow, we don't want to hurt his feelings and condemn his wars and battles that he's doing. So uh, we'll send the bishops out to pray for his troops. Well, then it went from that to, well, we'll join him, you know. Mm -hmm. And so in a, just a short time, Christians were going to war, first against pagans, but then against heretical, quote, heretical Christians, and then against, you know, Orthodox Christians, it, it just, it happened in, in a period of like 25 to 50 years, Christianity went, underwent a enormous transformation from being a persecuted mi minority to being a lukewarm, worldly group of people who lived no different than the pagans other than a few areas. They, they did ban the gladiator shows. They uh, made abortion illegal. I mean, there were some good things that, that came from the state church, but far more evil came of it than, than anything good. So if you want to use that date as 325 as the beginning of the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox churches, I mean, that might be a, um, if you had to pick a date, I think I would pick that. But your listeners, I would want them to understand that yeah, everything didn't just change overnight, particularly doctrinally. Uh, those things came in bit by bit. It was a century after that before Mary, you started getting into the big veneration of Mary and that we associate with Roman Catholicism. And it was even a century or so after that before you get into the prayers to saints and veneration of icons and things like that. So it's a process that happened, but... Yeah, through that process, it totally, totally changed the character of Christianity. And uh, yeah, you have a state church that behaves no different than the world. You have Christians quite willing to torture, 
to slaughter one another, and the church okays that. You know, they, they punish heresy, theological errors, they burn you at the stake, but wickedness, going to war and all of that, they don't do anything. In fact, they they will get behind you and pray for you and, and support what you're doing. Can I ask a follow-up question on that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, I really appreciate how you said, like, it, it was a... Um, it was a gradual turning. It's not like 325, they did an about face um, from the teachings. I believe it's Canon 12. And I apologize, I'm trying to do this from memory of the Canon of Nicaea, where it's talking about uh, Christians who decide they're going to go into the army, basically, um, how they're going to have to be he uh, hearers for a few years and then prostrators for a few more years. Um. Yeah. But that's like a teaching that Tertullian, or is it Tertullian, I believe, talks about? And, um, and uh, oh gosh, or maybe it's Origen. But I remember Hippolytus talking about someone who wants to be baptized, but they're in the army. Uh, they're going to have to like swear that right. they won't uh, use the sword and they won't swear to Caesar. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, would take no oaths and and uh, would not use the sword. That, that's if they're already a soldier because they couldn't get out. They couldn't say, I'm a conscientious objector now. Right. Uh, there was no such provision. So the, the church made that allowance. And since it was the Pax Romana, uh, a soldier could spend his entire life without ever using the sword. Um, but Often soldiers did get put in, into positions where they were called to do battle, and then they had to refuse. And so soldiers, as far as a class of people, probably you had a higher percentage of martyrs among them than mm. any of the other Christians, just because they would be put in that conflict uh, many times. And so, yeah, it's amazing that, like I say, the Council of Nicaea, you still have the primitive Christian beliefs, you know, and that the condemnation of war. And, and it's amazing that it was so shortly after that, like 10 years maybe a after that, that like you say, you have bishops, you know, accompanying the Roman troops to battle. And then somewhere along the line, you have Christians, you know, actually taking part in battles. And part of that is, once Christianity was a state religion, if you wanted to climb the social ladder, if you wanted to be anyone, have a civil service job, anything like that, you needed to be a Christian. And so everyone wanted to be a Christian suddenly. And so the church just becomes bloated. And I'm saying the institutional church with all of these professing Christians who didn't have any real relationship with Jesus Christ, who don't seem to have truly been born again, and, yeah, who are st still keeping their ways. And so now you have church leaders, many of whom were very fine people like John Chrysostom. You know, they're trying to ride uh, herd on, on, you know, this, this stampede of, of people who have not truly been transformed the way a, a genuine Christian is. And, and I mean, they do an admirable job. And I mean, like Chrysostom, I mean, he, his teachings, I, I can find no fault with almost anything he says, but 
when you listen to it or read his sermons, it's obvious that the people he is overseeing that they just aren't, they're not the primitive church. I mean, this is a whole different set of people who call themselves Christian. And this is like the year 375 or 380, you know, somewhere around there. Yeah. And I think it's around like 386 that uh, Augustine supposedly becomes a Christian. And then you have like the introduction of this just war theory in the uh, beginning of the fifth century or toward the beginning of the fifth century. And uh, I believe yeah. Luther was an Augustinian monk and Calvin loved, like, he really loved Augustine. Um, yeah. So how do you think the early Christians would have viewed some of the teachings of Luther and Calvin that are like clearly influenced by Augustine? Yeah, uh, I mean, they would they would just flatly call it heresy. I mean, I don't think there's any question uh, about that. Uh, particularly, of course, Augustine gutted the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, until you get to Augustine, um, like when you read Chrysostom, I mean, he is still upholding the uh, Sermon on the Mount in every detail, and. And when I say read him, we're reading his sermons or, or what we're reading. And so this is what he's preaching in, in the church of, of not using violence, of not taking oaths and, and those sort of things. But then you go to Augustine, who was, you know, in the same time frame, just a few years later. And he's explaining away every aspect of the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, oh it's OK to take oaths. Oh, it's OK to kill people in war. Love him. Hey, brother, uh, love you. Sorry, I got to do this, you know. And uh, that was his attitude, Augustine. And, and so he gutted the Sermon on the Mount, and Calvin and Luther adopted what Augustine said. I mean, wholesale. That they, they use his exact arguments, his exact words in following that. So, yeah, the early Christians would have condemned them for, on all of those points, as uh, heretics for uh, throwing out Jesus' teachings. And then you get to salvation by faith alone, meaning that we do not have to obey Christ as Christians. We do not have to live by his teachings. Well, that's what the Gnostics were saying. I mean, the early Christians would have probably assumed that Luther and Calvin, you know, were some sort of Gnostic sect. Uh, the main difference is the Gnostics taught that the God of the Old Testament was a different God than the God of the New Testament, which... Luther and Calvin never fell into that heresy, but yeah, a lot of their teachings would have had more similarities with Gnosticism than they would have with Orthodox Christianity, uh, one of them being that we do not have to obey Christ. The other is predestination. Most Christians don't realize that Luther taught predestination just as strongly as Calvin. We tend to associate that uh, theology with Calvin because maybe he tended to make it more popular or he spread it better than Luther did. But Luther taught it nonetheless, I mean, just as uh, dogmatically. And in the early church, it was the pagans. This was one of the teachings of the Stoics that, that we're all predestined. We live un under fate, that we can't change, you know, what's going to happen. And then the Gnostics taught predestination. And, and you have writings like Origen writing against the Valentinians, who were probably maybe the largest Gnostic sect 
uh, outside of Marcion, if you if you classify Marcion as a Gnostic, some scholars do, some don't, uh, because there were some different things in his teaching. But um, the Valentinians, I mean, yeah, Origen is having to refute refute them because they're teaching predestination, and he's teaching no free will. The church has always taught free will, and so yeah, Luther and Calvin, they're, they're resurrecting these Gnostic heresies. Well. Augustine is really the one who resurrected them, and then Luther and Calvin, uh, you know, did even more to propagate them beyond Augustine. I can't take much more of this, I swear. Never thought I'd see such darkness everywhere. Much more of me, I guess. You must see some purpose in this mess. Be still, my soul, and seek his face. Be still, my soul, and feel, embrace. Not mine to know 